The COVID zealots are back and demanding mandatory masks again, but some Canadians are pushing back. Ontario's stopping short of mandating masks and is instead recommending widespread masking, but while a couple Ontario universities have introduced mask mandates, non-compliance appears to be a big problem. Following a months-long shortage of children's pain and fever medication, an emergency supply from the US and Australia is expected to arrive in Canadian hospitals. A recent ruling by an Ottawa small claims court states that the Canadian Anti-Hate Network assisted the far-left extremist group Antifa. Hello Canada, it's Monday, November 14th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Anthony Fury. And I'm Jasmine Moulton. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. This past Sunday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford stopped short of mandating masks throughout the province, but urged residents to, quote, wear a mask every time possible. Now, while some Ontario doctors are out there pushing for a mask mandate, Ontario would be the only jurisdiction in North America, and it appears one of the only ones in the free world that would have such a mandate had it gone ahead with it. Now, this news comes as universities across Ontario have reissued mask mandates. However, as reported by True North, this isn't sitting well with students and faculty members. At Wilfrid Laurier University, student Camille Bacucci is coming up with humorous and creative ways to lead what he calls a, quote, peaceful revolution against his school's mask mandate. He has posted several images of himself to Twitter lampooning the mask rule, including wearing a clear plastic bucket over his head instead of a mask and loosely tying a Ziploc bag around his face. Now, Bacucci told True North that it's really only one class that he even needs to wear the spoof masks in. In most other classes, teachers apparently don't really care if students don't wear them, and the policy does not seem to be widely enforced. Now, Laurier's mandate has been in place since the beginning of the fall term, and Laurier is one of the few non-medical facilities in Canada that requires masks to be worn. One of the others is Waterloo University, which only recently reintroduced their mandate, but according to one university instructor, uh, Brent Matheson, students scrawled, mask mandate is a joke before class on the board in one lecture hall. The Ontario school controversially reinstated that indoor mask mandate just last Wednesday. But according to that lecturer, a lot of students just aren't going along with it. And instructors, well, they just can't be bothered and don't have the energy to demand it be enforced. You know, Jasmine, I think we talked about this before last week, but I, I'm still having a difficult time addressing why are we having this masking conversation again? It's not April 2020. This is November 2022. It does seem like we're having the same conversations over and over that we've had for the past couple of years. But Anthony, I was especially interested in this story after seeing a tweet from Rupa Subramania that said this, a 2019 study on mask use in healthcare settings showed that respiratory pathogens, including RSVs, attach themselves to the outer area of masks, posing a risk to the wearer and others. Greater risk with longer mask use. Masks can actually make things worse. Well, you know, that's quite something, but I think it ultimately just underscores why this should be personal choice. If you want to wear the thing, wear it. If you don't, don't. Exactly. I think what we're seeing as well is that there's a lot of decisions uh, or pressure perhaps coming from the public that is driven by fear. So we've heard stories over the weekend of overloaded hospitals, especially pediatric wings. So certainly there's a lot of fear out there. 
And I wonder what the chances are of any Canadian government actually going down this road. Danielle Smith said one of the whole reasons she ran to be premier is she said no more COVID rules flat out. So it ain't happening in Alberta. But you wonder with Ontario Premier Doug Ford, I mean, he's quite a weather vane. And especially the problem is that there's so many areas of overlapping jurisdiction that even if the premier were to back off mask mandates, then there are other units like health boards or school boards, for example, that could impose it nonetheless. An emergency supply of pain and fever medication is expected to arrive soon in Canadian hospitals. On Friday, Health Canada says special imports of ibuprofen from the U.S., and acimidophen imports from Australia are imminent. The unprecedented measures follow a months-long shortage of children's pain and fever medication and hospitals being overwhelmed by respiratory illness. This news comes as it was revealed on Saturday that a pack of children's Advil is currently on sale on Amazon for nearly $300 in Canada. Food, Health, and Consumer Products of Canada has said drug companies including Tylenol maker Johnson & Johnson and Advil producer Halion have ramped up production to address the spike in demand. Health Canada says it's working closely with manufacturers and distributors to get more supply to consumers. Anthony, I know you had a personal experience with the shortage recently, so why don't you talk to listeners about that? Oh yeah, Jasmine, it was quite something. I have a couple small kids at home and they did get sick uh, recently, just a couple weeks ago. And I heard the news about, oh, shelves are bare. Sometimes you hear these anecdotes, these reports, and you're not sure how, how exaggerated they are. Let me tell you, it is 110% true. I was in a situation where every second or third day I was doing the tour of duty around my neighborhood where I would go to multiple shoppers, drug marts, uh, multiple Loblaws and Freshco's, any sort of grocery store that has a pharmacy in it, looking for uh, children's medication, cold and flu, fever medicine. And generally you, you come up empty handed and you go to all of them and you go, like I said, several times a week. And then maybe once a week you, you hit gold because there's a couple left. So then you take what you need and well, the kids are quite ill. It is quite an aggressive cold and flu season right now. Uh, in Canada, in Ontario. So we're seeing a major supply and demand issue and, and many parents are talking about it. And oh boy, they're all sharing the same anecdotes. So overall, just a very stressful situation for parents, it sounds like, and an, an unfortunate one for the children who don't have this medication when they need it. But Anthony, are we alone in Canada in experiencing this shortage or what are other countries going through? Well, what's bizarre about all of this is that I have had people who are going across to the United States, or in one case, someone who had been to Korea recently saying, hey, look, there's all this supply in this country. Do you want me to bring some back for you? I actually have a neighbor who brought some medication back for me from San Francisco. And it's like, this is crazy. You shouldn't have to have some sort of like cross-country underground drug trade going on to give your kids some basic medication. And a lot of people are asking, what's the situation here? Why is this happening? It's been reported that one of the reasons is Health Canada has bilingual labeling demands. So you can't just bring across uh, from the American producers, those goods and start selling them. There's these rules about how you got to stop the supply, stop the shipment. You got to put new labels on to put the French component. And you're like, oh, okay, hold on a second, guys. Can we just do a timeout on all of this? And they are apparently dealing with all of this, but why were they not more proactive with these issues? Why wasn't the government more on top of things? And I think you'd be hard pressed to find a parent who would say that the bilingual requirement on these products is more important than relieving their child's pain. 
Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I appreciate why Francophone people want language rights, but if they're in New York, for instance, and their kid gets sick, they go to the Dwayne Reed drugstore and they buy the drugs without the French language on it, and they're happy to give it to their kids. Exactly. Now over to you, Anthony, with a story on the Canada's Anti-Hate Network. An Ottawa small claims court states that the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, quote, did in fact assist the far-left extremist group Antifa. Now, the judgment was the result of a trial between journalists Jonathan Kay and Barbara Kay and Anti-Hate Network director Richard Warman. The judgment states, quote, the evidence disclosed that the network did in fact assist Antifa and that the movement has been violent. Now, according to Jonathan Kay, litigation was, quote, expensive and time-consuming. Kay took to Twitter and said, quote, I felt it was important because the network was a government grant recipient the same, quote, anti-racism program used to cash out Leith Maroof, who was known for posting anti-Semitic comments on Twitter prior to receiving a government grant. Jasmine, this is a very interesting story because this Canadian anti-hate network organization, they certainly portray themselves as, as completely balanced on the political spectrum. But when we see stories like this, I think it may give people pause. Oh, absolutely. And it's not clear why there's not more scrutiny of these sorts of organizations in the media. But of course, what we do see is that a lot of traditional or the legacy media news outlets are located in downtown centers that at least electorally are leftist strongholds. So you can understand why maybe they'd be a little bit sympathetic to an anti, you know, or a right-wing extremist group. But certainly what we see with Antifa is that they're, they can be quite extreme as well. No, certainly. And I guess to your point about media, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, they have been quoted in many outlets as, as sort of top-notch, uh, above-reproach organizations. And yet stories like this make people go, well, hold on a second. Fine, they're doing their, their activism or their advocacy or their research, however you want to label it. But maybe we shouldn't give them this, this, this total patina of being completely unbiased. It seems like they do have a little bit of a bias if you're getting a court ruling that acknowledges that they have some assistance to Antifa. Exactly. And Anthony, this is not the first time, of course, that the anti-hate network has been exposed. At the height of the Freedom Convoy protest, the organization's chair, Bernie Farber, spread the false claim that an anti-Semitic flyer that was originally from Miami was circulating amongst protesters. That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.